what do you want to change? Who you are determines what you want to change. Who you are determines what you want to change. And who you are is based on your past. I'm going to give you a two-second overview of U.S.-like uh, history. And I'm glad to see there's a number here who are my age. So you'll... I think we knew history a bit better in our day than the kids do today. Um, nobody even knows where New Guinea is. You had the World War I generation. They were the doughboys. They fought they were teenagers. They then lived through the Depression. Same group of people. They lived through the Depression. Frankly, it was our grand my grandparents, right? They were the Depression-era people. Now, my grandparents were Italian immigrants, so they didn't really fight in World War I. Then their children fought in World War II. So they personally suffered in World War I, personally suffered in the Depression, then gave their sons for World War II and Korea, suffered that way in Vietnam. And then their grandsons, me, my contemporaries, were the kids of the 60s. And we wanted to change things. Now, I'm not saying I agree with every political and social issue that was basically in vogue in the 60s. Uh, probably I wouldn't. But the point is, we of the 60s wanted to change. Our parents' generation wanted to stop Nazism, fascism, communism. Okay? We wanted to change stuff. Those of you who are Generation Xers, Millenniums, I don't even know, I kind of Googled what the heck the definition of these things are. I asked our daughter Rachel, she's 40, so I think she's a Generation Xer techni technically. And you know what she said? I said, what's a Generation X to you, Rachel? She thought for a minute, she said, well, lazy. <laughs> they want entitlement. And she had another word, I forget what it was. See, our grandparents suffered so that their kids could be better, and our parents suffered so we could have it better, and we wanted to change stuff. What do you want to change? Question number two, maybe take a step back. What does Jesus want to change? In the real question, what does Jesus want you to change? This is not how to live the Christian life. I am making an appeal for workers. So when I say, what does Jesus want you to change? I want you to hear that question and say, what does Jesus Christ, King Jesus, want me to do to change the current state of affairs? I haven't defined the current state of affairs yet. Open your Bibles. We're going to read three verses, three uh, things, uh, in pa passages or verses in Acts of Jesus speaking to Paul. Paul's comment on it when Paul was saved, and then you'll pick up the thread of suffering and change. Acts nine verses fifteen to sixteen. This is when Paul is praying in Damascus. 
Jesus appears to Ananias and says, go baptize him. And Ananias says, what? Baptize Paul? Saul? He's come to kill us. Hear what Jesus says to Ananias about Paul. Acts 9, 15 and 16. And the Lord said to him, Go thy way, Ananias, you go. For he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Turn to Acts 22, verse 10. Acts 22, verse 10. Here the Lord Jesus is speaking to Paul. And I said, Paul says to the Lord, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go to Damascus, and there it shall be told you all things that have been appointed for you to do. Our final verse, the verse that I put as the text of the sermon. Acts 26, verse 18. When Paul is talking to Agrippa, King Agrippa, we won't read the whole thing, I just want 18 because I want you to hear what he says here. Right? This is Jesus talking to Paul, and Paul recounts it to Agrippa. Paul, you are to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith in me. Change. What do you want to change? I want you to consider changing people's condition from bondage to Satan dwelling in darkness to freedom in Christ, living in light by doing missionary work in Papua New Guinea. Is that clear? That's not ambiguous. I want you to think about changing people's condition. There are people in Papua New Guinea who live in demonic darkness. See, Jesus links darkness and Satan. Demonic darkness, satanic bondage. That is their condition. Yeah, there are people here in America the same way. But you've got three pastors here. Right? Carrie, Dibel, and Hudson Taylor's logic, numerical logic. Is it right that there should be one for every 900 and in China one for every 250,000? It is not right. I want you to think about that. Three points we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this under three points. Number one, each of us has been gifted and has a job appointed to us to do by Jesus Christ. The second verse, when we read 22.10, appointed for him to do. Appointed. You have a job appointed to you to do by Jesus Christ. That's point one. Two, I'm clarifying this, I mean a gospel work. And three, suffering. We do not know what it means to suffer. Our parents did, our grandparents did. And I'm going to tell you, they were great people. 
And we're not great people because we are not willing to suffer for anything. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay, number one. We're not going to go turning a lot today in different portions, a little bit. To each of us, to each of you, you are gifted to do a job by the eternal plan of God. He didn't throw darts at a board when your mother and father, when you were conceived. He didn't throw darts at a board for the day you were saved. He predetermined who you were to be, who you are today. Sure, circumstances frame us. You know, and I like vanilla ice cream, and you like chocolate, and all those kind of silly things. But for the essential you, you are the handiwork of God to do what He wants you to do, not what you want to do. That's not understood in Christian churches today, I'm telling you. We have it way too easy. God have mercy on us if hard times come. We won't know what to do. The verses we read are clear. Uh, uh, Ananias, go. I'm going to show him what things he will suffer for my sake because I have ordained Saul to bring my name before the Gentiles, kings, the nation of Israel. Chapter 22, uh, I'm going to show you, Paul, what things are appointed. That means a determined cognitive act by God before Paul was born. We all know Jeremiah 1.5, I've ordained you a prophet to the nations before you were born, when you were in your mother's womb. Have each of you sat down, maybe don't sit, maybe lay down, prostrate on the ground before God and said, what have you made me to do? That's a big question. Paul is our example. If we don't have Paul as an example for this type of thing, who do we have? Don't think Paul is unique so he doesn't count for me. No, Paul's the example. He is the example of how God works. Don't say, oh, God appointed work for... uh, I'm sorry, Jesus appointed a work for Paul to do. That doesn't apply to me. No, it does apply to you. Paul is no different, was no different than you and I. He was an elect of God... So therefore, in eternity past, God elected Paul to salvation and appointed a work for Paul to do. That counts for you too. But let's turn, because I want to support that uh, from the scripture. Turn to Romans 12.3. Romans 12, verse 3. You could tie 1 and 2 in your body, acceptable sacrifice. We're just going to read verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, and that could be person, not man, male, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, with thought, prayerfully, 
soberly, according as God to dwell, has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Every one of us has been gifted by God. That's what he's talking about. Then he enumerates gifts in the following part of the chapter. And he says, think soberly. Give work to figuring out what God has made you to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12. But all of these work that one and self same spirit. In other words, the giving of gifts and everything else. The same spirit is working, dividing to every man uh, severally or accordingly, as individually as he wills. For as we're one body, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body are many, so are we one body in Christ. Everyone, the Holy Spirit, according to the eternal plan of God, has gifted each and every one of you. Ephesians 4. We're wrapping the nail three times here. Ephesians 4, verses uh, 11 to 16, because this ties in also the, a little bit the part of the church, which is important. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 16. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints or unto the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of faith the knowledge of the Son of God a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things who is the head Christ Okay, verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, makes its increase unto the body to the edifying of itself in love. The pastors of a church, the elders of a church, their job is to train you saints to use the gift that Jesus Christ in eternity past gave you to do the work that he has appointed for you to do. That's how the church and the individual piece together. George, Glenn, Joe, train your people to use the gift that Jesus Christ has given them. People, figure out what that gift is because it's not my job to figure out what your gift is. Figure out what that gift is. And when I say figure out, I mean prayerfully. Seek the Lord's face. Have him show you what he wants you to do, what you were made to do. And then start doing it. Now, there's a little bit of a caveat here too. The gift, it's not just the gift and then you use that gift wherever you want to use it. Or use that gift in whatever work or job, let's say, job's probably the wrong word, where you want to use it. No! The place is also established for you. And my classic example is always Jonah. See, we like to say in Christian circles, I've heard this, maybe it's a little outdated, if you won't do what God wants you to do, he'll find somebody else to do it. You know, I disagree with that. And I think of Jonah. 
Jonah and Nineveh were bound together in the plan of God. Obviously, Jonah did not want to do it. Obviously, God made sure he did it. And I'm going to tell you, don't be a Jonah. I am, I'm putting you in a bad situation. I'm giving you a problem. Because I am telling you, God has made you to do a certain work. He has gifted you to do that work. It is your responsibility, Paul says it in Romans 12.3, it is your responsibility to figure that out. And if you do not figure it out, that's a problem. And if you do and don't do it, that's a problem. And I'm warning you, don't be a Jonah. I don't have really good news in that sense. This is bad news. <laughs> you got a problem. But in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you need to do this. <sighs> See, you can know your gift. Okay, now I'm going to kind of gift, work, place. We don't think of it in this way, but this is... okay. I'm going to use teaching. I just find teaching, preaching to be the easiest way. A person may have the gift of preaching, teaching. And let's just join them together for right now. So that's the gift. I believe I should teach the equivalent of a Sunday school or something like that, right? That's the work. But the place also counts. I should do it here or there. So you may say, oh, I do believe I have this particular gift and I'll exercise it in Tottenville. Ooh, that's getting close to home, isn't it? I want you to consider exercising it in Papua New Guinea. Now, I do not know who the Lord has called. I don't know if any, the Lord has really, if it's purpose for anybody here. I don't have that gift. <laughs> that's not my job. His job is to tell you, your job is to seek. I hope I have been praying for a very, very long time, not for just you folks, but for all the churches that the Lord will raise up workers. I said it before, I'll say it again. We need workers. Is it possible, may it be that the Lord's will is that somebody from here will want to join us. So your gift, how you exercise that gift, and where the geographic location all count. See, Jonah and Nineveh, Ray and Cheryl, among the Angave. See, I could have tried to go somewhere else. But God wanted us there. Number two, point number two. I'm talking about a gospel work. Sometimes we, call, we like to say, I'm called to, live a, to be a silent witness in the workplace. I have a problem with that. Now, I'm not, you're supposed to witness in the workplace. When we're home on furlough, I work at the old family business a little bit. I'm supposed to be a witness there. But I believe, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, that's a cop-out, I think, for a lot of people. The gospel is a verbal message. The evangel, it's good news. 
It needs to be spoken. I'm talking about a gospel work. I'm talking about speaking the gospel. So I'm directly challenging you to consider gospel work in Papua New Guinea. We do not need a painter. Now, a pa- we, oh, let me, I said that wrong. We don't need a painter to paint. But if you're a painter and you want to preach, brothers, that's... Let's talk. So it's not the painter, it's the painting. Don't need house building. We need preachers. We need teachers. You want to be on a losing team or a winning team? <laughs> and that's like a no-brain no answer. Of course I want to be on the winning team. I tell the, the Angave people that the book of Revelation, I've preached a lot out of the book of Revelation. I say that, and I tell them, I say, look, there's a, a lot of it we don't really understand. I tell them in America, Christians have you know, different thoughts. We're not sure about a lot of this stuff. Not like the middle, those middle chapters. I said, but if you understand one thing about the book of Revelation, know this, Jesus wins. Amen. Amen. So do you want to be in the winning team? Do you want to be... You're on the winning team if you're a Christian. You're not, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. Or do you want to be on the field with the winning team? Or do you want to be sitting in the stands maybe? Or outside the stadium? Okay? Do you want to be marching down the street with the, uh, the team, as the winning team, you know, when they have the parades and everything? Or do you want to be just a spectator on the side saying, rah, rah, you know, yeah, I, I'm a Yankees fan. The only one team in baseball, Yankees. <laughs> Who, let's, I believe that there are rewards in heaven. Okay? Who gets rewarded more? Let's just be honest. The guy who hits the grand slam in the in the World Series or something, or the guy who's cheered loud in the stands. God's got a government. I preached two weeks ago, three, a few weeks ago on kingdom. God has a government. Glenn, you were in the army. You told me. Um, maybe there's a few other military guys here. Congressional Medal of Honor, Bronze Star, Purple Heart. Government's honor. Heroes. Who's the hero? The guy who does it or the guy on the sidelines? Now there is, uh, this is multifaceted. You know I'm aiming at one thing. Okay, so you know, I'm not, we could not be on the field without your help. I am not at all, not at all deprecating your prayers and support and standing with us. Not at all. But, who gets the silver star? The bronze star? The Congressional Medal of Honor? The guy who's a hero. Not the guy on the sidelines. If, if, our, if governments honor heroes, if bosses give a bonus based on Results. God does too. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've done. Look at the parables of the talents. You did. 
I am asking you, telling you maybe, I don't know, asking sounds better, in the name of Christ, to consider having an active part in a needy place for the greatest work in the universe. There is no greater work than gospel work. And think of Paul where he said, I sought to go where Christ was not named. Where Christ's kingdom had not entered, wasn't established. That's where Paul wanted to go. He was forever, uh, he was forever looking over the next hill. That's why he could leave, be in a place for a few months, a year, and leave a church established and say, I'll write you a letter, but I've got to go to the next place. We've done the opposite in our American churches for the past 50, 60 years. We hunker down, afraid to go outside our walls. What with King Jesus? He's running the universe to accomplish one thing only. Build his church. Putin, I, I always forget the Chinese guy, Biden, the, right? The, these guys don't run the, uh, the geopolitical situation in the world today. Oil, lack of oil. COVID, lack of COVID. Jesus Christ is the, this is my own analogy, the master chess player moving the pieces to effect the salvation of his elect and build his church. Period. If you believe it, a lot of amens. That's good. If you believe it, then understand what I'm asking you to do. I'm saying, get involved in the front lines of this gospel work. King Jesus will honor that. Right? Congressional Medal of Honor. <laughs> what excites Jesus? Have you ever thought of that? Um, Craig and I were talking that God has a sense of humor. That's God, Jesus, right? Has emotions, they're not it's. Right? Well, that's one of our proofs that the Holy Spirit is a person, a he, not a it is that he has emotions, he can be grieved. Okay? What excites Jesus? What do you think? He sits there like in, there's a, uh, an, what would you even say, a, a deadpan 24-7? Things excite Jesus. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, right? Okay, Curtis? There is joy in the presence of of the angels in heaven when what? One sinner repents. Now, okay, Jesus was talking, so the Father, well, I think if the Father's happy, Christ is going to be happy. I mean, <laughs> what excites Jesus? Sinners being saved. His church being built brick by brick, right? It's a spiritual house, rocks, bricks. As each Let's use rock. It fits. As each rock is quarried from the pit of sinful humanity, polished up by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and fit into its preordained place in the house, God's house, is being built. Don't you think Jesus is happy? Excited? Yes! Come on, guys. Don't you want to be part of that?
I'm going to tell you something. I had another life. I probably know, you don't know it. A family business, uh, commercial roofing. We did Walmart. So my brother owns a company now, younger brother. Does good. 20 years, I was, I was the buyer, the pencil pusher, number cruncher. I wouldn't trade what we do in New Guinea for that for, used to say a million bucks when a million bucks counted. <laughs> it doesn't count for much anymore. For anything. Are there any doctors in here? Well, I wish there was one. EMTs? Okay. Have you ever saved a life? No, you haven't. Oh, I know that. Nope. Well, that's not... You've only postponed death. I have saved lives. I mean, with God, but right. See, God, Jesus tells Paul, "You're going to turn their eyes from to light. You're going to rescue them." Doctors only postpone death. Missionaries, gospel preachers, we save lives. I'm going to say I've seen the dead live, and you know I don't mean physical death. Okay. <laughs> We've seen dead people living, deaf people hearing, blind people seeing. One time when we went to these were pagans, demon-worshipping pagans. Like Jesus said to Paul, to take them out of darkness and put them into light, from the power of Satan to the power to the whatever he says of God. We've seen it happen. We are, well, we're not, we're here now, so I can't say we are seeing it, but you know what I mean. It's happening. What job do you do? What's your day and day life about? Can it compare to that? No. See, I got you with the saving lives. Because even we, we want to say doctors save lives. Of course we say it. That's just the way, that's the way we say it. There's nothing wrong with it. But they don't. They only postpone death. The greatest work in the universe is saving lives for eternity. Eternity. Man, eternity. Living forever in heaven with Jesus, with us rather than dying forever in hell with the devil. See, I don't believe in annihilation. I, don't, I assume you don't. The, the, uh, the people in hell die forever. It's like, we, it's, a, it's a mirror, not a mirror, it's, you know, it's an opposite. If we, li we live forever, they're dying forever. Eternal death, that's what it means. It's never, it never ends. We can rescue them from that. So point number two, I'm talking about a gospel work. The greatest work in the universe. Being done with Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew 28. Uh, the last verse there, verse 20. 
Well, we'll read 18, 19, and 20. We all know the verses. And then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you know what man used these verses in missionary history? Anybody know? I assume you know. No? William Carey. Okay, in his great debate with the uh, hyper-Calvinists of his day, who said, it's the statement summed up by, uh, I forget his first name, Ryland Sr., Reverend Ryland Sr., who said to Carey, young man, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Right, hyper-Calvinism. And Carey pointed to these verses and he said, we baptize... Why? Because Christ commanded it. We don't have the right to divorce baptism from going. I'm going to take it and use the last part. Where Christ says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. He's with us when we go. Now, I'm not saying He's not with you if He hasn't called you and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying He's only with people on the mission field. I'm not saying that. But, (laughs) but, He is with us when we go. And there's a lot to be said that he... I don't want to say he would only be with us if we go. I'm not saying that, but I'd like to say that, but I don't think he says that. But you know what I'm driving at. There's a lot of push there. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age is linked with go. Just like Carrie said, why do we baptize? He said, you can't say we shouldn't go then we shouldn't baptize. See, that was his point. They said, you can't go. And he said, well, then why are we baptizing? And I'm saying, well, he says, go. Can we claim the promise that he's with us? Ah, we can, but you know what I'm saying. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Turn there. What I'm trying to show here is that as a gospel work, we are not alone. Christ is with us. And if you're feeble in your thinking, if you're of weak faith... If you're equivocating in your own mind, vacillating, I want to strengthen you with these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Meaning, King James to wit, meaning that Christ, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. Be reconciled. Uh, we... We pray in God, Christ said, be reconciled to God. The point is, He has given us the word of reconciliation, and He has given us the work, speaking, gospel speaking work, to speak that word of reconciliation, and He is with us doing that. So if you're afraid, if you see the point I'm trying to make, that this is an important work, it is what drives Jesus Christ, but you're afraid to consider doing. You don't even want to go there and ask the Lord, is my gift and place of work possibly in New Guinea? Think of these verses. 
And let me ask you, is it better to be with Jesus in a difficult situation or without Him in an easy situation? Amen. Don't ever think that as missionaries we're not afraid at times. We are. We don't walk on water. Right? Jesus, when Paul was in Corinth, he said, Paul, be not afraid. Paul himself said, within were fightings, without, uh, within were fears, without were fightings. We're afraid at times. We certainly wonder and pray a lot what to do and we don't have the answers to everything. Don't let those kind of thoughts stop you from prayerfully considering your gift and the fear of using it to do a gospel work for Jesus Christ. Point three. Suffering. I believe... And I'm going to give you a scripture in a minute. That our blessing in heaven is proportionate to our suffering for Christ. Sometimes we suffer because we're stupid, okay? You know, we all do. We sin and we're stupid and we just make dumb mistakes. That's not the suffering I'm talking about. Our blessing in heaven is proportioned to our suffering for Christ here on earth. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we suffer, we will also reign. Now, reign there doesn't mean you're going to... If you don't suffer, you won't be in heaven. The one parable of the talents, I think it is the one in Luke. Pretty sure it's in Luke. The returning king comes back. He, may, he asked them, what did you do with the money? And the guy says, you're, I got ten talents. And he says, rule over ten cities. Okay? He says, you've been faithful and little, now I'm going to make you ruler over ten cities. That's what reigning means. Some of us, because of our faithfulness here on earth, will be entrusted with greater uh, opportunities in heaven. Faithful with little, you'll be entrusted with little. Any bosses here? Are you going to give the least? Re- are you going to the? Are you going to give the most irresponsible work you have the most important work to do? Duh. You're going to give the doer in your company more to do, right? The old saying: If you want something done, give it to somebody who's got lots to do because they know how to get things done. God's like that. Here, you were great with ten dollars. I'm going to give you ten cities. I know you're capable. You're only capable of five? Okay, five. Oh, you buried your talent. You buried your talent. You didn't even think well enough of me. This is what the the king in the parable says. That you didn't even put it in the bank. And so I could get a little bit of interest. You know, my half percent, whatever we get today in a bank account. You thought I was a stingy guy. Because I reap... Yeah, of course I reap the profit of your work. I'm the boss. See, that's what they're saying. That you reap what you didn't sow. Every boss does that. That's the definition of a boss. I hire you to do the work I don't want to do or can't do. But I get the profit of your work. That's what bosses are all about. Okay, if you're in the public sector, you probably don't catch this. But if you're in the private business, you're flipping burgers so the boss can go have a condo in Florida. That's what Jesus talks about. And he says, yeah, I as the king, I reap the benefit. I get the glory 
from your hard work. Why would we resent Jesus Christ getting glory for our hard work? If we suffer, flip the burgers, you know, the equivalent, we'll reign with him in heaven. That's what, we don't hear well done, good and faithful servant on earth. I mean, we may hear things, and, and the Holy Spirit encourages, uh, encourages us when we're down. Of course, those things are real. But, well done, good and faithful servant, we hear in heaven on death, the last day, however that plays out. I hope that doesn't mean I'm supposed to end. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Ernest Shackleton? I forgot to write the quote down, uh, the thing down. His newspaper, you can Google it. I'm going to give it from memory. Google it, you can find it. Or, uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton's newspaper ad, something like that you'll find. It's posted all over the place. It was three or four lines in the, I guess, the London Times around the turn of the 1900s. He, Ernest Shackleton was the guy who made it to the South Pole. Their journey across the great southern ocean in a dinghy 20 feet long is uh, like unbelievable. I read two or three books on If you like adventure stories, guys, forget these stupid books that I write. Read his stuff. This is what it says. Wanted men for long and arduous journey, uh, cold, dark nights, hope of return, doubtful. (laughs) If we return, great rewards. MI5, the British equivalent of the CIA or something, Put an ad in the paper. I think it was in the 80s. Okay, it doesn't really matter. Two or three lines. Spies. Oh, sorry. Ernest Shackleton had 5,000 respondents in the first few days. 5,000. Where the line says, return doubtful. Jesus says, return guaranteed. Okay, the MI5. Spies, well, I think that was all said. Spies wanted, call, you know, 1-800, you know, need spies. I don't know. In the first week, 20,000 respondents. Now, sure, okay, some of them were, you know, a little wackies and maybe, you know, but you get the point. Sean and I actually kind of like spy shows. I couldn't be a spy if you, you I wouldn't know... Put a gun to my head, I'd cave. I'm not, I can live with cannibals, but I can't do that. <laughs> Jesus says, pray ye the Lord of the harvest. I don't want 20,000 people. I need like two. China Inland Mission in the 1800s, in one year, uh, I forget the year, Taylor, uh, Hudson Taylor came back, in one year, 100 new missionaries. And they went to suffer. Cheryl and I don't suffer anymore. I don't think we ever suffered, really, to be honest with you. We never suffered. Those China inland mission guys, ladies guys in the 1800s, they're, see, inland China... The coastal cities of China had been evangelized at churches, missions, things like that. And Hudson Taylor, he was in the, um, I forget the town, uh, for you know, a few years. And he realized, wait a second, he's hearing stories of towns, a million people. 
And he's saying London's got, maybe there was a million, you know, he said there are towns, many towns the size of London have never, ever heard the gospel. That's where he got his thing, said, wait, in London there's one church on every corner, a pastor, a minister for every 900. There's a town in China, a million people, nothing. He said, that's not right. It ain't right. In one year, the China Inland Mission had 100 new missionaries. So where are the missionaries? I need help. I need workers. I know that's wrong. I almost hate to say Jesus needs help, but you know, in one sense he does. Because even though salvation is 100% of God by a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit giving life to dead people and all those other good creedal things we say, He doesn't yell down from heaven, Be saved! Whose mouth does He use? Ours. Whose feet are the blessed feet? Blessed are the feet of those who what? Bring good tidings, the gospel. If you were to join us in New Guinea, you're not going to suffer maybe like you're afraid you might suffer. But you will suffer in some ways. It ain't easy. You'll see how... Not as good, no, I don't mean morally good, not as uh, capable as you thought you were. You will be stretched. You will want to quit. There are many times I walk down our airstrip, our house is like right alongside the airstrip, and I walk down and I say, what am I doing here? When there's bad times and we've had opposition, or we have had opposition, nobody's ever nothing that we've been like in danger there was the one Abraham thing but not really a big deal I said these people don't even want me what am I I got 11 grandkids what am I doing here so you suffer a little bit but I'm getting to like that word but like Jim Elliot said anybody know Jim Elliot's famous quote he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm not talking about your salvation. But I am talking about, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. You've been faithful with ten dollars. Here are ten cities. Reign with me. If, you don't suffer, if we don't suffer, we won't reign. So... For some of you, maybe only for one of you, you're at a fork in the road right now. And you know, at a fork in the road, you can't, you can stop, and the 18 wheeler will crash into your rear end on the back. Because time really does wait for no man. And Jesus Christ won't be mocked, and you can't run away from him because, think of Jonah. Okay? If you read the book of Jonah, which will take you, you know what, half hour or so to read it, <laughs> it is very interesting all the means that God used to wake Jonah up. 
the natural world, the sea, uh, the whale, the seaweed, the worm, the sun, the hot wind. I'm going to tell you something. You don't want God... You don't want to be resisting God. If you're at a fork in the road, you better start talking to God about it. If in your own mind you're thinking... You're, we all know what it's like when the Lord talks to you. If the Lord is speaking to you about what I'm saying, if you are feeling that inner prompting, jabbing of the Holy Spirit saying to you, this is for you, man, do not ignore it. Now, if you don't want to suffer, don't speak for Christ. Don't go to New Guinea or come with us to New Guinea. Go to New Guinea. Absolutely don't go. Deny the Holy Spirit's prompting. You won't suffer. Not in New Guinea you won't suffer. I don't know what else will happen, but you won't suffer there. If you do not die to self, you won't suffer. See, Christ says, die to yourself. Lay down your life for me. And it's so counterintuitive that that type of suffering actually is the greatest blessings that you can ever have. It's absolutely counterintuitive. Die so you can live. Give up life so you can enjoy life. Suffer so you can reign. Totally counterintuitive. I do not believe that Jesus Christ has called us to live the good old Christian life in middle class America. Uh, we're, I'm assuming we're basically all middle class Americans here. He, if that's what he has for you, you are to live a Christian life, a godly, holy, vocal Christian life. But that's not what he's called us to. He's called us to extend his kingdom. Is that for everyone? No, it is absolutely not. But if God the Spirit is talking to you now through my mouth, pay attention. Last verse. Hebrews 12, chapter 1. One and two will read. Wherefore, seeing aside, we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Here's the, here's the phrase I want you to catch. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ endured the cross for a future benefit. That's what it says. Who for the joy that was set before him, the joy was there. The path to joy was through the Christ. That's why it says he despised the shame 
he was stark naked on the cross, just in case there's any... But he was stark naked, mocked, etc., on the cross, and endured it to get the future goal, uh, joy. The same word the writer to the Hebrews says to us, think about that. I, Ray, am saying to you, think about that. Is your path to future joy in heaven through gospel work in Papua New Guinea? There's no way I can know for each of for you people individually. That's your job to figure it out. But there's a cloud of witnesses like in a stadium. And you're on the field. And right now they're saying, what will he do? What will she do? I need workers. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we commit this time to you. It's your word, Father. It's your kingdom. They're your elect. As Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. And Father, these saints here in Tottenville are your people. I pray that you would stir up some to join us. That's your work, Father, by your Spirit. I pray that you would continue to have your hand of blessing upon these people here. We rejoice uh, in the people you've brought here. We thank you for during the difficult uh, two years, year and a half, they've stood firm, visibly firm and visible for the gospel work. We thank you for that, Father. And we thank you for adding to their numbers um, folks to hear your word. We pray that you would cause Tottenville Evangelical Church to be a beacon, a great, mighty beacon, Father, for the gospel uh, in this area. We pray that you would use them mightily. We commit them to you. We're thankful to you for them. We pray your blessing upon them. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.